All right, let's let's just let's just start. I feel like there's nothing that any of us can say. Everyone knows who we are. We're quite famous, world renowned. Oh, we are recording right now, by the way. Oh my god. <laughs> we are uh, we're well known for our opinions, uh, our hatred of AWS. <laughs> strong word. <laughs> no, I don't hate AWS. I've said this many times. No, you're just passionately against everything they do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just don't like better, people that disagree with me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, like, there's, a high, there's a high level of expectations There is, we need. Especially from a man like Jeff Bezos with that glorious, glossy head of his. I expect exactly. much more, Jeff. If you can go into interstellar planetary, interplanetary orbits, why can't he sort out cloud formation? Yeah, I don't think he's going into an interstellar orbit yet. But uh, what's he doing? He's going. He's just doing a bunny hop. Oh, bunny hop! Yeah, essentially, like they go up and then they come back down. We don't want this to become the the rocket talk podcast, though, because I still stand by my point. But sort out cloud formation, and then you can go for your. And then you can go to space until you can (laughs) make an effective cloud formation uh, system. Then uh, stop the space stuff, Jeff. I'm not sending you a Christmas card this year, Jeff topic but because you know there's people out there who love cloud formation maybe it's just us it's true actually one of the companies that uh, i'm contracting for just hired someone who's a cloud formation uh, fanatic apparently they want to delete all of the terraform code replace yep. it with um with cloud formation why uh that's a good question i can't wait to find out I don't, ah. i'm not going to get that chance for a while though but i'm uh, sure you'll have a strong opinion when that conversation starts yeah yeah, yeah, I will for sure. <laughs> Considering I just deleted all traces of cloud formation and have seen nothing but benefits. Actually, when they like table this discussion, the, you should make them listen to your previous yeah. podcast. Where <laughs> 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 you like talk about all the issues you've had. And then I'll just drop three hours worth of uh, cloud formation complaints <laughs> and uh, production issues that I've been hit with over my lifetime. Exactly. Yeah. And then if they still really want to do it, okay, fine. Yep. I mean, yeah, even even GCP has the same thing. I can't remember how that uh, the I can't I don't think it's as bad as uh, CloudFormation though. Everything GCP uh, does is better than AWS. That's benefit that's a fact. <laughs> huh? It's, a, it's benefit of hindsight. Like they've seen that, yeah, exactly. the AWS things and they're doing it better the second time around. Good good for GCP. I'm proud of them. AWS just never learned to like fix things. They just like add another thing that does the same thing. Instead of, of fixing posts, it, yeah. A lot of the posts I see, people say that AWS is so far in front, it's going to be hard for the other cloud platforms to catch up. Uh, maybe. Mm. GCP's got a lot of adoption, and they also have Google behind them, uh, unless they get uh, Monopoly busted. Mm. So I, I, I doubt it. Mm. GCP's just so much easier to work with that I think people will just, it, it'll be the thing where everyone just starts using that more than likely. Yep. That's my prediction. Azure is also getting pretty good, apparently, although I haven't yeah. used it at all. Yep. But, Microsoft's got all that AI stuff now with the Copilot thing happening as well. Oh, right. That is Microsoft. I, I, I always think GitHub's like a different entity, but it is the same thing, isn't it? So it's all the same octopus. Yeah. <laughs> GitHub is but part of so... the TypeScript. What else do they have? TypeScript, Azure. NPM. MPM. They literally own us. Why don't we just use why don't we just use Azure? 
Well, surely there's going to be improvements in the future, which is going to make the developer experience better. You would think like mm. everything should just plug into each other. Yeah. And uh, they've got some really interesting serverless concepts. I'm kind of glad that um, uh, Azure didn't decide to just go for the, the AWS model and they're sort of doing their own thing. Like mm. they both have very different standpoint, like viewpoints. And uh, it's cool to see difference. the way that the key differences. Yeah. Uh, I think I told you one of the things that I found the most interesting was um, their idea of, um, what is it, durable functions, mm. which is instead of step functions, where you write shitty JSON <laughs> and you can't test it locally or anything, or uh, it, it's literally just like a, dec- like a, a YAML file yeah. that describes if statements. Um, they do a system by which uh, you can have a really long running function that yields out to other functions. And then that's how you do orchestration. So if you want to fan out, fan in, you have a durable function that manages that orchestration. And you actually uh-huh. code that instead of having that be like what AWS does, which is uh, write so much JSON that it's unparsable that they have to write a, a GUI editor for anyone to be able to do anything with it. So, yeah. whereas if it's just in code, oh my god, it's such such so so much better of a of an abstraction, uh, the durable function. I think I'll have to have a look at it. Yeah. Is there any other key differences that you think, like in the direction that they're taking? I think. <clears throat> that's that's one example of like the interesting changes uh they still have like uh functions essentially um no i don't i don't know of anything that's like a big change other than that yeah uh all of them all of them have slight differences like the way organizations are structured like um aws is sort of getting onto it but uh gcp came out with structured organizations before like they started with structured organizations and gcp's like org structure is fantastic. Like if you want 14 different accounts, it's so easy to manage that in GCP. Whereas in AWS, as you've witnessed, having multiple accounts is like not ideal, <laughs> quite, quite difficult. And yeah. uh, you're, they're not even treated as like owned by the same person. You have all these like fake emails. Anyway, it's a very, it's a very weird story in AWS with their new AWS organization system relative to what GCP has. Yeah. Well, this is something that you use a lot, so that's one of the things you would think they would try and make as easy for you to use as possible. Mm. But uh, they they started with the idea that I think I think they started with the idea that everyone would do everything inside of one AWS account, but that's turned out wow. to be like worst practice, and almost yeah. no one does that. No one has their prod systems sitting in the same AWS account. So yeah, yeah, you need that separation. You need a full air gap between the two systems. Yeah, that's right. So uh, just keep, just keep uh, making new email addresses. Mm. It's a good system. One for each account. Thanks, AWS. <laughs> so what's what's been upsetting us this week? Well, I was going to ask you that question. You've been uh, doing the big. You've been doing the big features. I've been like writing. No, you're writing code. You're uh, you're translating a markdown or a am, yeah. doc file <laughs> into. Cool. HTML file and putting it into HTML. Very much fun. (laughs) Updating the terms of service. Yeah. Well, I started today and I thought it'd be straightforward. I'm like, yeah, it's not that much text. I'll just convert it manually into HTML. And then they kept going and I'm like, I need to work out a faster way to do this. This is not ideal. Yeah. Well, some code generation 
it's definitely going to be in there. It, I see it in your future. You said Pandoc as well. I'll have a look at that. Yeah, it's a nice little CLI utility. It'll convert anything uh, like Markdown into whatever, Docs into whatever, convert uh, PDFs, I'm pretty sure, all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going to be the last time that we update all these terms and conditions. No, it happens once a month typically. No one yeah. ever reads them, but uh, got to have them. That's right. So, yeah. so uh, did you read that uh, Eric Elliott article that uh, I sent you? I seen you posted that. I had, a, I had a bit of a read of it. The TypeScript I'm not a TypeScript tab. fan. No, I was very surprised because I used to read at Eric Elliott all the time. His uh, okay. he's like the Java one of the JavaScript guys. Kyle Simpson yeah. and Eric Elliott were my like influencers. Yeah. When I was coming into the industry. Until now. Yeah. <laughs> posted that he doesn't. Like Actually, TypeScript. both of them. I don't think Kyle Simpson likes TypeScript either, does he? I can't verify that, but because um, I, I just said that with no basis, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't use it. I think he likes vanilla JavaScript. All the people who've been using vanilla JavaScript for like uh, 20 years all say, no, vanilla JavaScript, no TypeScript, I think. Well, that wouldn't surprise me because even um, when I was reading the You Don't Know JS books, I could tell that uh, Kyle Simpson didn't even really like the ES6 classes for JavaScript. Yeah. Very much a traditionalist. Mm, he is, yeah. Uh, he thinks he should leverage the uh, the core language more than anything else, even at the expense. I I think even at the expense of readability sometimes. But uh, mm. yeah. Uh, but uh, Eric Elliott in this article makes the case that um, he doesn't think that uh, he would use TypeScript again, uh, and he provides a whole bunch of data about it. Um, it's uh, it, TypeScript's actually the third fastest growing language in uh, 2018, which is so he wrote it in 2019. So it's a little it's a little old, but I hadn't hadn't seen the article for ages. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, above that is HCL, which is Terraform. So clearly, <laughs> Terraform was taking off as well in 2018. Yeah, um, I think he's saying that. Uh, the reason why he wouldn't use it is because there's a there's an overhead to using TypeScript, which is that you actually have to uh, there's more stuff on the page, which makes it harder to read. Which okay. um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, I think that might be the case for someone who's used one language and doesn't like to see it change. Mm. But um, I've never heard of anyone starting with TypeScript and then being like, you know what, this was a mistake. We should we should bail out of this. Well, even though there is more stuff on the page, sometimes it helps you because you don't have to go hunting around working out what a function does. You can just... I don't have to actually read all the pages. Yeah. Well, one of the things um, that Eric Elliott and Kyle Simpson are big fans of is like focusing on naming, like naming everything perfectly the first time, which I don't think is possible for one. And then the names will change slightly and whatever. But um, the good thing about TypeScript is that the name of the function isn't quite as important as the signature of the function, like what its inputs are and what it, what its return is. That's right. So that, that's more communication than the actual name can ever give you, I think. Whether yeah, or not seems- something returns a promise or, uh, you know, what, what its inputs are, if it has options or a callback. Yeah, it seems like these guys who had long-term experience with JavaScript and they've got... You know, they've been bitten in the backside by all the intricacies of JavaScript so many times that they have these ways of working to prevent 
all these problems, like whether it's naming or how they write their functions or whatever the case may be. But when you're a beginner like myself, sometimes it's nice to have a bit of bit of a safety net, you know? TypeScript. Yeah. I don't think it's just for beginners. It's, I mean, uh, e- even Google's using it. So, you know, Google, they have a big mono repo. They yep. use this, they use TypeScript and they have a whole bunch of packages linked together. Apparently I was reading an article from one of their engineers about how it's oh, impacted Google and, uh, uh, everyone's getting a lot of benefit from it. I think mm. the, uh, yeah, he, he talks about how, uh, Eric Elliott talks about how, um, the, the reduction in bugs. Uh, so there's a, there's apparently a 20% reduction in bugs when you use static types, um, uh, it, but uh, I mean, I don't think uh, TypeScript's necessarily a statically typed language like all of the other ones that you would list. Like, uh, it's quite unique because it's probably the only language where at any point you can just say, I don't care and just dump out into vanilla JavaScript land. Yeah, that's right. You can opt out at any time, can't you? Whereas, like, if you're in Go, there's something like that where you can do like an interface, like an empty interface. And you, but then you have to cast on the other side. It's very confusing, and yeah. uh, it is actually like a performance hit, and it's a lot of mental overhead to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But uh, you can actually just like change any type to anything you want at any point in TypeScript, which, if used irresponsibly, can definitely make stuff more confusing. Mm-hmm. But uh, like, if you have a very complex type system and you just want to write a document above it explaining you could like probably replace some very complex pieces with just good documentation if required so yeah you got the escape patch use it sparingly but it's there when you need it yeah exactly which most other languages don't have if you write in java you're pretty much stuck with the static type system you can you can do some casting as well but it's quite dangerous it takes a lot of code to do that looks like he done he done an roi analysis as well so yeah. Turn on investment, I'm so it's guessing. more like a business case for TypeScript, I suppose. Yeah. Is what, what he's he's looking to do. Yeah. I wonder if his opinions changed now. Well, I was I was reading through his other stuff. I think he posted this recently. Like he reposted that, and that's why I saw it again. Ah. And uh yeah, I think his uh, opinion holds. So he's saying but but like the thing is that bugs caught by TypeScript <laughs> uh it's not even just bugs caught like that's not the purpose of static types is to catch bugs. It's to give you information. It's the most effective type of documentation for code that you can have instead of writing a whole bunch of JS docs. So he actually, he mentions turn JS, which I used uh, probably uh, how long? Five years ago, turn JS. Yeah. Okay. And uh, turn JS is like the original language server for, um, for JavaScript. So much like Solar Graph, which is for Ruby, which is like they both look at a dynamic language and based on names, they'll try and guess what types are. Mm -hmm. So if you have uh, convert to uppercase, it might type that as string. Or if you have JS doc above it, it might be able to tell what it is based on the annotations. Yeah. But uh, you don't get any help writing that. So. And uh, I think you've used, you've been in a code base that had JS doc. How was that? Well, it was great when people kept uh, maintained it. You know, it was yeah. it was helpful. But the problem was in my team, I think there was one person out of 10 who was maintaining it. And 
everyone else would come across code which hadn't been updated with the JS docs. And then so it doesn't get updated anymore. So you end up with all these old JS docs. And then and then you question yourself, you know, is the JS doc up to date or not? So then you just end up ignoring all of them because you don't know which ones are right and which ones are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's what the difference is. It's actually in line with the code. And I yeah. mean, Google had a, a system that was like that as well, ages and ages ago. Even 10 years ago, they had a system I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a, a it's another type of JavaScript that's like TypeScript, um, where you would use comments in line in the function to define what, like you'd name what the parameters are, and then you could say uh, is a string, and then they had a parser that would come after the fact. But even those like would fall out of date and everything, and it wasn't a strict yeah. typing system, sort of. So, yeah. TypeScript's so mature now. It's he he also mentions that uh, it's not capable of a whole bunch of things. I don't. Uh, even when he wrote this, TypeScript was capable of higher order functions and all of these, these things that he's saying he couldn't do. Mm. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe he'll give it another shot. Version four came out. Version four came out like this year, didn't it? It did. Yeah, it was in the middle of. Uh, oh no, we started with the version four, didn't we? Or did we? So. Well, maybe you bumped it. Major version. Yeah, maybe we went from three point three point something. Yeah, yeah, probably mm. version four probably came out then. That was a big change, but uh, all of the stuff that's in there was still doable before. So I, I've been like I've been using TypeScript before version four. So maybe he's just you know he's attached to it. He's got underlying biases, and he just doesn't know. He's not aware of it. He just can't move himself emotionally to adopt TypeScript. You've worked somewhere where pe- there was a lot of uh, resistance to moving to TypeScript as well. With this sort of, I think this is probably this would be the article that they would point to more than likely for why they wouldn't want it. Because this guy says he comes from a, a what, C-sharp or something? I can't remember yeah. what his background is, but it's a it's a strictly typed language, obviously. Um, and uh, he says that all that overhead made it much harder to catch bugs. Mm. I think well, the other the thing... It's the same kind of yeah. situation where the more experienced people were like, no, we don't need TypeScript. And then the, the less experienced people were like well, we're going to benefit from it. Yeah. So I feel like it's the people in the in the middle who might not have had all those years of experience get the most benefit because the people who've been coding for a long time have, know all the workarounds and know how to identify these things because they've been caught out so many times. Mm. I think also some of these people, Eric Elliott I know is a fan of the um, functional uh, JavaScript scene, which I used to be quite a fan of myself because Eric Elliott was a fan, so I was a fan. Uh, <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, you do just end up with, you end up with something that's very easy to work with for the people that understand how the system works. But getting getting most people up to speed with it is like takes forever. It's just so far out there, and with no types. Like, at least if I gave you a Scala code base or a, a Haskell code base, like, you'd be able to get up to speed because you have the compiler telling you what's wrong with your code. But yeah. with vanilla JavaScript, you just get the most esoteric errors because you just, like, you directly called something on something that's wrapped three times. Like, if you if you look at any comp, uh, uh, really complex functional code base, you've got, like, a future of an option of an option of, a, of some other, of an I.O., of of something you know mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and to unwrap all those is so complex in in vanilla javascript that it's just i, I don't know but 
it's it's too much overhead. I would say those sort of systems are too much overhead, more so than TypeScript. There's also, I think, um, you don't have to write complex code with TypeScript, and there's no reason why you you don't have to use classes if you didn't want. Yeah. Any code base, you could just add your annotations to, and you would just get more feedback from the compiler instantly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of TypeScript and I, I prefer object-oriented design for software. So I, I go for the probably the harder system that makes it more productive for me. But uh, there's no reason why if you just had, you could literally just have an express server with functions and get a heap of, heap of benefits from TypeScript. Yeah. And TypeScript is actually running all the time in VS Code anyway. Like that's what yeah. the actual language server is. It's not like they use turn, turn JS, yeah. T-E-R-N-J-S. So Eric Elliott is listening. Hop on the Discord. You can tell us uh, what you think. <laughs> tell us how he misrepresented your opinions. Yeah, give us <laughs> give us the updated, give us the 2021 version of do you like TypeScript or not? He does say he's optimistic for it for the future mm. in the long term. So maybe he's changed his mind by now. Maybe. I, I do follow him on Twitter. I've not seen anything of the sort. I don't see him talking about it, but mm. uh, we'll see. So It's sort of taken off recently, I suppose. Everyone's doing it now. Yeah. My prediction is a couple of years' time, no one will start a new project. Hardly anyone. We'll start in, in vanilla JavaScript. We'll start a vanilla JavaScript project if mm. it's for a if it's for a production code. Yeah. Well, but, uh, uh, there's a whole there's a whole group of people who do uh, vanilla JavaScript, even like no framework front end development as well. I remember I I, I tried to do that as well. Yeah. It's just so much overhead. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm not really that. being paid to, you know, uh, think about DOM updates, really. So We've got better things to think about. Yeah, like uh, why is this dependency not injected in this, like, 32 <laughs> stacked uh, IOC container? <laughs> anyway. That's more of a juicy problem to solve. Yeah, that's way Actually, more fun. Speaking, speaking of problem solving, you've been working on big features this week and you had a few problems. Um, you're, you're always testing the, the limits of the system that you work in, I feel like. <laughs> you, always, you always come across these little things. Oh, is this the, um, the connection? Yeah. The, so, the type stuff. No, I just think, uh, I think the most important thing, uh, if you want to be a developer that people like, uh, other than not being dismissive, <laughs> is to uh, um, take responsibility for what you put into production and for what your users see. So uh, that means that if something goes out, I'm responsible for watching it. Even if we had an operations team, I would still be responsible for checking errors and, and uh, finding issues at runtime. Yep. Uh, and yeah, so I did notice that uh, on our invocations graph, we do have a couple actual Lambda crashes, not just a, like a 500, but like a full-on Lambda dying event. Yep. Uh, and that's since I updated Typeform. And um, the issue is uh, that, so when Lambda invokes uh, your, your handler, uh, we create a connection pool to Postgres, and yeah. then we leave that connection pool open. And that has a few uh, actual physical connections uh, through the internet to the Postgres instance. 
and yep. it keeps some of those alive and it uses those during the invocation and then it keeps some of them afterwards in case it's invoked again, right? So it's mm-hmm. like connection pooling. And yep. uh, if one of them dies, it's meant to kill that connection and get you a new one. Yep. So you have a nice little API from the pool that just says, get me a connection and then do something with it. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the pool hasn't been uh, quite so resilient as of late. Now we're getting timeouts uh, when a lambda... So it only happens when the lambda is like cooled down for about 15 minutes. So after about 10 minutes of being cool, uh, mm-hmm. if you hit that lambda, you'll, you will on occasion, and I can't like reproduce it 100% of the time, uh, it will occasionally uh, throw a connection timeout error from Typeform. Even though obviously we're using RDS proxy and everything, there is no issue actually connecting to the database. There's no uh, ex- like heavy load. It even happens in the non-production environment. And it's so a it's very hard actually- one to track down. It's not actually timing out. It's just giving you a timeout error. It's an immediate timeout Ah, as soon as the Lambda is invoked. Yep. And uh, so I went back and I looked through the last three months of invocations. It's never happened before. We've never really had any full-on Lambda crashes, uh, except for one time when the uh, RDS was uh, undergoing a backup, I believe, and uh, there was actually one one Lambda crash like a month ago. (laughs) So. Uh, but now that's happening occasionally and uh, very frustrating because the user gets a little a little error and they have to retry. Uh, we'll add some retry logic so that doesn't happen in the future. But um, the, uh, the underlying reason is that when the Lambda is done invoking your handler, the way that uh, it's... Sa- so um, some people don't know this, but uh, this anything that's outside of the handler uh, is actually it actually runs in a container. So all of that other stuff is like global scope and can be used between invocations. So that connection pool we keep open. And uh, the way that Lambda does that is that it reduces the CPU dramatically. So the amount of CPU available to the Lambda function goes to almost zero. So it essentially freezes uh, your code. Yep. Uh, And... Because of that, it's able to use, like increase the amount of CPU and resources to it when there's an actual invocation and keep it cool for a while so it can reuse a single uh, container, a firecracker container. Um, but in that time when the CPU is cool, uh, a connection can die on like the Postgres or RDS proxy side and uh, it won't get an update. Normally there would be an update yep. because you would have had that event. Um uh, but but uh, for some reason now uh, we're not recovering from that scenario with Typeform. So I have to find some way to either resolve that, uh, try rolling back the library, see if that works. But it's a very hard thing to test because a normal failure doesn't cause this to happen. So if I were to if I uh, put a firewall, if I put a security group on the RDS uh, proxy and yeah. block all access, this error doesn't even re- reproduce. It's only after 10 minutes of cooldown. So, mm. so it's, another, it's another difficult uh, uh, bug. And nothing in the time, time form, uh, there's no issues raised or... I know you're on... I've got a, have I got a yeah, Slack Yeah, I'm on their Slack. Discord? Yeah. I, I read their Slack all the time. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think I'll be using Typeform again. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of uh, silly little... 
edge cases. It's just very big software, Typeworm. Like there's so much uh, that Typeworm does that it really shouldn't be doing. So I've seen I've seen people's queries that should have been very simple, taking uh, like 15 minutes in, in the Slack channel because of like relation loading that okay. is not very well described. So but how do you how do you improve on type or then? If, well, if you don't use type or what's the what's the next option? Uh, I think just a query builder at at best. Really, what I want is something that lets me interact directly with the um, uh, native bindings for Postgres. Uh, so there's like a library called PG Native uh, or yep. PG, and those are like the actual underlying thing that all ORMs use for P- Postgres, for example. Yeah. Uh, anything that is built for 32 different databases, I don't think is going to work well. Like I've given up hope on that. I've tried Hibernate, which is a Java framework, uh, which is probably the most confusing and weirdly like only like out of a company of 50 people, only one person will actually know how to operate it. Cause it's like this weird layer on top of SQL that's meant to operate with all databases that Hibernate works with. Very strange. Um, yeah, so I think I'm just done with with ORMs. But you, but you're basically going to build your own ORM. Like, how will you if you go down that path? Won't you just end up building your own ORM, which is tailored just for Postgres? No. So I don't want an ORM. I mm. want a what I would like. And there's a couple projects out there. I think I've got a couple on my my site um, that take a static SQL file and will tell you what the types of all those are. So uh, have you used GraphQL in TypeScript before or Flow? I haven't used GraphQL with TypeScript before. No. I use GraphQL with So vanilla. when you use GraphQL with TypeScript, what happens is you point, you have to run like another compilation step, which is you write a query document and then GraphQL will come in and read the string that's your query document and will tell you what the return type of that would be, including errors and everything. Uh, yep. And so... There's a generator that does that. Uh, essentially, what I would prefer is some system that allows me to do that. So see a, a SQL string and then generate the types for that specific query. So not an ORM, but a, a type generator for whatever query that I write, if that makes sense. Yep. And is there no package like this out there at the moment? Yeah, there's a couple actually. So that, that's that's one of the reasons why I would I would start new projects with it. Uh, mm. Picking one is the trouble because there's there's several. I think um, I think Mammoth does something like it. There's something called it starts with an S, Scuddy or something. I'll I'll link them in the show notes. Oh yeah, good. Schema TS is something that will generate this the schema for your actual database. But uh, I I can't remember what it was. I, I I actually was so excited about it that I ended up staying up to like. 2 a.m. reading their documentation like a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, they they actually go through and anywhere there's an, a SQL tag, they insert the return type. So you no longer need to like keep track of what the objects are. You have yeah. the actual return type there. So, yeah. so then realize, you're no longer uh, overfetching or anything. Every time you come up with like you go, I don't really like Typeform. You've done that with CloudFormation too. Like, I don't really like CloudFormation on one episode. And then two episodes later, it was like, okay, I've removed CloudFormation. <laughs> and then it was like, uh, we've got too many lambdas. 
I think I think mono lambda might be a good idea. And then two episodes later, you're on a mono lambda. So yeah. is this the is this the you know the fork in the road where it's like yeah I think type form I don't really like it blah 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 and then two episodes later you're gonna be like yeah okay so I've taken type form out. Now. Well, if we're getting connection errors and I can't fix it through down downgrading the library or anything, then yes. Yeah. Uh, but no, I don't think so. The database isn't something you ever want to swap. Like uh, oh, okay. whatever your connection layer is, it's just not worth it because it's it's hard to understand where the difference is. Like, yes, if I had to, it would be very easy for me to do and I could probably nail it out very quickly. But there's always a subtle difference between different like storage backends. And while we have tests for that, I still, I'd like it wouldn't be worth it for me to do that because I already have yeah. a system that does all this for me. So, but, uh, you know, I've tried SQLize. SQLize gave me a massive uh, amount of memory waste for no reason and uh, would kill services. Uh, I've tried uh, the loopback model system. That's horrific and also takes up infinite amount of memory and is the most confusing thing on the planet. Uh, yeah, uh, Hibernate in Java and then uh, a couple different Go uh, ORMs. Uh and the projects that I've been happier with the results have been ORM free. And mm. what I've realized is at the end of the day, the only thing that I use the ORM for is the query builder. So there's like a way to just say, uh, like create query builder and then have a couple dynamic where clauses. And that's the only thing that I'm doing that's above like raw SQL is having that okay. thing that just says dot end where dot end where if this, if user ID is provided Query dot end where and that's that's the only thing that I use an ORM for. So, sure. Yeah. So next time, next when you do your next startup. Yeah, the next next thing I work on, uh, maybe even the next microservice I work on, hmm. entirely possible. Wow. Okay. But that's uh, interesting. you've also got to think about like when the database ends up being part of uh, like a large part of your application. Because uh, especially if you have a a, a relational database, because even the the transaction mechanics become part of how your system works, and if you alter that, obviously there's risk. So, yeah. so because uh, because our endpoints are wrapped in transactions, and they'll reject if I changed the underlying system that handles those transactions, there might be a bug in Typeform that is mm-hmm. causing behavior that I expect to be correct. <laughs> that I don't know about. So yeah. it's a, it'd be a high risk activity. Uh, the mono lambda thing is low risk because that's a, that's like a runtime optimization that's worked out. But yeah. uh, the, the database itself is relatively high risk changing that. Mm. And I've, I, I've done two database migrations and it's not, it's not fun. Mm. Mm. So we'll avoid it if we can. Yeah. But was that part of, you got that big piece of work you've been doing with, billing and stuff was that part of that or is that where you came across it uh no but i i always have regardless of what my trello board says i always have like uh the performance statistics and the uh error error uh, graph up so if i see something happening and i notice that trend uh i thought it was only like a connection error once uh but it turns out it's it's a little bit more pre- pre- pervasive if i where log are you in monitoring it, is it just AWS the, Lambda and Sentry. So there's oh, okay, the, yeah. the monitoring console. And then I have alerts from Cloud CloudWatch as well. Yep. Yep. 
do they hit the Slack channel or is it just an email message? Uh, some of them hit the Slack channel, yeah. You'll notice that there's no more latency errors. It used to, yep. There used to be a lot of uh, latency. Uh, we were hitting over five seconds, which is horrific, um, but not anymore. Yeah. Yeah, like if you look at our alerts channel, it's just there's some uh, 400 errors. That's it. Yeah, sorry. Reading it now. Yeah. Podcast. <laughs> no, I'll read it later. But yeah, so what was the feature you were working on anyway? The billing stuff. Tell me about that. Oh, billing. You've been doing like, you've been building like a billing system with Stripe. Um, loving it? Do I love Stripe? Yeah. I, it's got the best API uh, of any of the services that we've integrated with. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and their their JavaScript API isn't bloated. Uh, so I integrated with Twilio and I sort of just, we wanted to get it done overnight. So I used their JavaScript client and I checked how much space that took. They The Twilio client has like 17 dependencies or something. And it was almost half the bundle size when I added it. It dramatically oh, wow. changed the latency of the uh, yeah. Lambda the second that I had the, Twi- the Twilio API. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't look like it's uh, appropriately uh, tree-shakeable for some reason. Webpack wasn't able to compile stuff out. So it was literally bigger than Typeform. It was bigger than the ORM and all of the other APIs that I had combined. Oh, my God. The Twilio API. So very poorly built. Not a fan Twilio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The uh, Stripe one, though, is very intuitive. Um, I mean, it's. Uh, I think it was one of the first projects we did at, at Coder Academy, or maybe not one of the first, but it was It was one of those uh, ones yeah, that everyone we were building did. building our Ruby, Ruby on Rails. Our Ruby on Rails application. The Marketplace app? I can't remember. Two-sided Marketplace. Two-sided Marketplace, yeah. yeah. We had to put Stripe in. Yeah. But then that re- really never made sense to me. So, but anyway whatever. But uh, yeah, so the billing system, it's not just, so Stripe has, Stripe is, Stripe is not necessarily SaaS first. Like they, they started and primarily seem to be for retail companies uh, accepting payments or just accepting one-off payments. Um, Their subscription stuff is still undergoing a lot of change. So there's updates even in the last few months that I've seen that have dramatically changed the way um, their, their billing system works, which has made it better. So they have like volume-based pricing and uh, uh, graduated pricing and all these these additional options that they didn't have before uh, and different ways to submit invoices and everything. Um, it's, it's, it's bigger because we have a system in which we only want to invoice once. The Stripe subscriptions map directly. They call it a customer. Uh, we have to map our like all of the because we're like a multi-tenanted system and we bill for multiple tenants at once and it and stripe isn't built for SaaS. we sort of have to map our system into their met like usage based system and we have to do uh usage reporting every night so we have to do like a, a nightly job for how many uh businesses are linked to their billing account for example yeah uh and then that's one aspect that is a bit custom and then uh the other thing that we have to do is, uh, and this is normal, but uh, whenever there's an invoice published, uh, you actually have to uh, essentially accept the invoice programmatically. So we have some webhook events that we need to listen to, uh, and uh, we use that to sync and display invoices and that sort of thing in the system. 
Uh, so what do yeah. you mean we have to check the invoices? Yeah. So you have to, so they they send a, like a invoice pending. I can't remember the name of it, but mm-hmm. uh, there's a, there's an invoice uh, webhook event that they will send us. Uh, we set that on an SNS stream uh, topic uh, mm-hmm. and then we process that. Uh, and then we send back a confirmation to say, charge the person. And before that, uh, in, in that window, if there's other charges you want to add to it and calculate, you can add that to the invoice that will be sent to that person. So, Okay, so is the purpose to verify that the charge is correct? Is that part of Both the to verify and to uh, add any additional charges that you would need, mm-hmm. for example. So every month for each uh, account billing account that's linked to us, we would be getting a webhook event for that invoice confirmation. Uh, and mm-hmm. also, yeah, anytime mm-hmm. that someone disconnects, right, because they would get a prorated um, uh, invoice. Uh-huh. So do you actually do uh, like double check? Like this, like when the bill comes in from Stripe and it says, okay, charge James $50, do you verify against our data to make sure that that matches or? No, no, I don't, I'm not building a, like a pricing system. And so I'm, so uh, it started out that, so we've got more than one payment provider that we will have to accommodate for. Um, but unfortunately I haven't been provided documentation for one of the payment providers as of yet. So I don't really know what the fuck the other one does. (laughs) So we get that documentation when, if you're listening, please. Yeah. Um, so I've sort of got to, got to hold off on whether or not we need to build an entire pricing system or even how this essentially one of our partners is mandating that we, uh, that we use their pricing system, their, their new, uh, pricing system. Um, so we'll see what that will look like, but, uh, I've decided like, it's, it's not possible for me to, to, to write all of the pricing stuff that Stripe has into, into our system. So I'm just trusting them with everything. Yeah. Stripe is of the services that we've used. Stripe is the one that I trust the most. Uh, like they, they have way more, uh, compliance, uh, requirements than any other, um, company that we work with so and they're used everywhere so yeah yeah even even zero has had issues but uh stripe i don't believe will have any uh, unexpected issues i mean I, I make payments through stripe all the time like i'm charged through stripe all the time so before the subscription stuff uh became part of stripe how are people managing subscriptions for SaaS? There were other products. Uh, it's actually, there's an ecosystem of uh, tools, I think called like Chargebee is one of them that uh, mm. came up at the top of the list. That actually just wraps your Stripe system. And it's a it's a billing system for Stripe. And you can uh, link, and, uh, link your Stripe account and then, yeah, uh, manage okay. billing periods and invoices and pro rata through that. Okay. And then they but use the like, payment method through Stripe. Okay. But Stripe's got enough of a feature set now to avoid yeah. those. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. And they've got metered billing and everything. It's actually getting really good. Uh, like quite, like it's a quite, quite a strong product. You can tell by some of the naming that uh, it wasn't intended to be the way that it is now. I think like even customer isn't like the right terminology uh, for, for what that entity is in Stripe given that it's also for subscriptions, but anyway. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Naming things is always hard at the beginning, isn't it? It is. What a struggle. You never know where the company's going. 
it, we it's could be. almost as hard as a segue. <laughs> <laughs> Did you add any new interesting packages for this feature you built? Stripe? Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, wow. Yeah, I did actually. Uh, React Query. Oh, I'm trying to set you up your segue. <laughs> Were you? Uh, I totally forgot about it. React Query is uh, is a is a library that is not state management and not uh, like a fet- a data fetching library. It's neither of those, but it's both of those, oh. and it's quite cool. I, I quite like the the theory of it. I think it fits with the front end a lot better than most most state management tools that I've that I've used. Yeah. Much better than Redux or anything. There, when you're using TypeScript, you do feel a bit naked because it, it's definitely not like a TypeScript first thing. Like the caches aren't typed or anything. So there's a bit of like reading around and like you have, you have to make sure you're using the right cache keys. But uh, essentially it's a hook that uh, lets you declaratively request data. Uh, and it manages, if you have two different requests on the same page, it will batch them. So it will do both requests at the same time. If you have uh, a, a, a request that was done and it had a cache timer, so for example, uh, the config for the business is cached at 15 seconds right now, it will respect that in subsequent calls. And it does it pre- like with a minimal amount of configuration. So it's pretty strong. It's also, it uses uh, essentially dependency injection. So it's very, I think it's relatively easy to test the system with as well. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've been a big fan of this, uh, of React Query thus far. So with the batching stuff, yeah. if there's two requests to do two different endpoints, what's the benefit of batching it? Two, so it's not two requests to two different endpoints. It's two requests to the same thing. So, for oh, example, okay. I have to worry less about whether I'm loading the same thing twice on the same page because if that data is already loaded somewhere and it's loaded again, even a couple seconds afterwards, because that data is live, it's on the page on the left, we mm. would expect both of those to be in sync as humans, even if that new data on the bottom right, like let's say that we loaded the first component on the left and the second one loaded two seconds later, we still expect those to be the same. So it, it doesn't do another request to the server. It looks in the cache and pulls the data back and displays it on both. And if there's a mutation that happens, so it's split into queries and mutations, much like uh, 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 GraphQL is. Uh, and if there's a mutation at the end of it, you can invalidate cache keys. Uh, and the cache key doesn't have to be like, there's, it's not like there's only one cache key you invalidate. So for example, we have businesses positions and all these other things that you can query. If you, um, if you take the, if you invalidate the cache, it, like if, if you updated the business and that affects the positions and all this other stuff, you could actually invalidate all three of those things. And then if you had all of those things on the page, you don't need to like have a callback directly to that like component to tell it to refetch. You just say this data is now invalid if it's on the page and it will refetch that data. Oh, nice. Yeah. It also looks better because if you do it, the like use effect with a is loading, um, which is the standard way that we've been doing it. Uh, if you do that, normally when you do a reload, there's like the spinner again and the data looks a little bit like it's not, real time doesn't feel snappy whereas with react query it already has all the like oh if i've already fetched i'm just gonna i'm just gonna like load and then if it 
like whenever it comes, I'll update, but it doesn't need to like go into a loading state. And that's all configurable, but out of the box, it has some really sane defaults that make it uh, incredibly useful, I think. But if you, do a, if you do a mutation, if there's data on the screen and you do a mutation, it still shows the same data until the response comes back and then it updates it. So you don't get the flash to the loading state for that split second. Yeah, exactly. Unless you want it to. So you can configure that. Uh, yeah. It also has some helpers for doing things like infinitely long lists. So infinite scroll style pages. Uh, you give it something that will find a pagination parameter and it will call that thing infinitely. Just hook it directly into like a, there's a simple example. Uh, there's like a listener for um, uh, like an intersection observer, I think it's called. And then that's a, a very easy implementation of infinite scroll lists. A lot of the stuff that you expect to have to do uh, on the front end is just so, so much easier with this versus needing to manage global state through something like Redux or one of those other like different state management tools, which are more like app state management tools instead of um, like state. What, what, so I think what React Query calls it is a uh, server state. So, which is different than application state. Yeah. What's the trade-offs? The trade-offs? Yeah. Well, obviously there's like the typing is a bit of a struggle. You do have to sort of know what you're invalidating. So you have to know about your product, which is, uh, you know, could be a bit of an, uh, an ask for some people. Yeah. Um, I, I really, I think that's probably the biggest one is the, uh, the lack of typing on the cache. Um, because the cache key is essentially like, uh, it, it, it's practically like having a, a reducer that's untyped. So I think, I think that's the biggest struggle for me. Other than that, uh, it could be confusing and you could end up like calling endpoints more than you expect. Something I uh, found was that uh, if I had the page open, by default, React query, when you leave a page and come back to it, it will refetch the data, which is actually pretty cool Like to have out of the box uh, to see that uh, when I moved the cursor between windows, I was seeing data update. It was like I had a free WebSocket essentially. But yeah. because of that, like there is a there's more query time. Like it is spinning longer, so... I, I would say that's another another trade-off. Definitely simpler. I, I think it's just a, it's a different take on the idea. Like you maintain server state and you maintain application state and you'd need two different tools for that. And they're not the same thing. I think that's a, a pretty good statement to make. I like the fact that we haven't uh, put any state management into our app besides obviously context and... yeah normal reacts the stuff that comes with react out of the box but yeah we've both used uh state management in front ends and uh 99 times out of out of a uh, 100 it's a uh, it's a bit of a nightmare yeah. uh it's, it, it's always very confusing but uh i think react query is simple enough that you really there's 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 not it's not too hard pretty straightforward i don't think you'd have any issues but did you put it because we've got the API client layer. Yeah. Is React Query inside our API client or no. within our front end? It's a front end tool, so it's only in the front end. So I could have made that an, an optional dependency or peer dependency and I considered it, but I don't think it's I don't think it's the right thing to do. Like that's it's 
it's not in the domain of the API client. The API client's job is to translate uh, like what the endpoints and all are, those sort of things, not to not to have hooks. It's just a, it, it would feel like a, a dirtying if I added it to the API client. So Yeah. Keep that API client. Keep it pure. Fresh and clean and pure. Yeah. yeah. Untainted. If you want to from... use Angular tomorrow, uh, you can just use Angular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. That's I mean, right. it, it would be cool. I think... Um, I can see the possibility of of having like the the like such a dreamy API through something like that, like integrating uh, something like React Query directly into into um, into an API client. But uh, it it would be too tying it down too much to that. Yeah, yeah, because other be frameworks sad. don't have those those systems. Yeah, yeah. And then if you want Angular next year, you got to use Angular hooks. Angular query. Hey, I, I have no idea. Probably. <laughs> I'm sure someone's taken the name Angular query. It's probably not even the same though. Not the same thing. All the good NPM package names are getting taken. So when you come up with a good one, you let it go sit on it. I know. That's what I've done. <laughs> I took designed, <laughs> just put some trash in there so I can hold on to it. Yeah. yeah. When you, when you get a chance to open source it and then it goes big, yeah, exactly. When we open source our company. It's a possibility. We could open source it. Do you think that would work? Uh, I wouldn't want to because uh, we handle sensitive data. So yeah. if we were doing e-commerce, I think that'd be fine. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely some risks there uh, if you open sourced it. It would need to be a delay. You'd need to have like a week uh, in between your open source version and your actual version. Well, you don't want your junior to push an API key accidentally and have it live up on the public open source version <laughs> in Git history forever. So, yeah, probably not ideal. Mm. But anyway, I'll that's see. that's all that I could think about for my segue. <laughs> I was going to, um, I was going to ask you something else about like the front end do you think there's any other major improvements that we would need to make what's the next kind of thing that you foresee in the future that we would have to like start working towards migrating towards because i know the back end stuff you're always like a couple of steps ahead you know which direction it's going to yeah the front end it seems like we just add stuff as we need it but Mm. we need that kind of foresight as well or oh for sure yeah it it's already a struggle like for me there's so many things that I do that I'm like, I've done this like six times and I would love a component, but <laughs> I don't have a component. So I guess I'll just copy paste. Yeah. It's essentially just me like finding the line to copy paste from, because that's what we've been doing for the most part. So yeah. um, I think the most important thing would be that we start like even our, so the designer that we have has started breaking down our system into components. Uh, if we started breaking our system down into components right now, we're essentially, we're writing HTML with a with a library like if we were using bootstrap it wouldn't be too far from what we're doing sort of like not too bad but uh uh yeah i think if we were to focus on removing the display from the like what we're actually doing the state and the loading states and all of this stuff i think that would be the most beneficial because then we'd be able to mock stuff up a lot faster whereas now uh for me to come in and add just a like uh, a drawer or something like I have to 
find what the exact chakra UI incantation is for that rather than being able to just pass it some data and have a drawer, that sort of stuff. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, so we added storybook for that specific reason because we discussed that. I think that's that's the biggest improvement. Um, global app state, I don't think we need to do anything for that. I think React Query is a, is a good experiment and I think that will probably be something that we do. I can see a lot of issues that are actually resolved using React Query um, for our loading. So for example, uh, React Query has like an automatic network failure retry and uh, like this bug that we have is results in what's essentially a network error and uh, the, the one about the, the connection uh, timeout that we spoke about earlier. Uh, and we could, we could just add a retry. And if you had a, a retry of one to that, then that bug just disappears. No, no one ever yeah. sees it again, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be ideal. Uh, if, we, if we had some sort of server state, because we we're also we're making too many requests that are the same on, the, on one page, um, uh, one thing that I have been doing, and I, this, is, this isn't related to the front end, but um, I noticed that when I was writing code in the serverless framework, I was very precious about adding new a- API endpoints because I knew that every API endpoint I added, add two minute, added like two to five minutes to the deploy time, right? That sort of uh, thing. Well, yeah. And so I was getting to a point where I was jamming as much as possible into a single REST API endpoint as I possibly could when it would actually, like the design of it made a lot more sense to be two separate things. And one of the benefits of getting off of serverless and having like this mono lambda with a router is that I no longer have to like really worry about like, the deploy time because it's always yeah. going to take the minute and 30 seconds that it does now. Uh, so I, I can add endpoints as quickly as I need. And yeah. uh, I think that's been the biggest change in the way that I've been designing the API is that I'm not focused on having like four things that do ev- four API endpoints that do everything. I'm actually splitting them up into, into heaps and heaps of different uh, API endpoints. Does it ever make sense to have an endpoint, which is tailored, for a very specific component or page, for example. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Is it is that an optimization that could be made where... So like you load multiple different points of data? That's very common. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. If we were making a public API, uh, so for example, something like Stripe, there's a whole bunch of JSON uh, schema uh, definitions. Um, JSON schema is not the name of it, but ways of writing JSON so that you can like expand parts of a document like that's sort of one thing that I think might do what you're you're asking. If you're yeah. doing like a public API, you could do that. Uh, it, since this is like it's specifically for an application, this API, uh, yeah, it would be pretty reasonable to say like, oh, give me all the businesses and all their positions. So, for example, we already do that on the users page. We get all the users certifications, all like everything about the user is loaded in one go in a list. So, yeah, so uh, we already do that. Uh, quite a bit. You just got to make sure that the queries for the database don't get out of control. Well, the good thing about REST is that you know exactly what those queries are. And uh, if it does get out of control, like that's that's the heaviest query that we have. And it's still, it's only the slowest invocation I've seen is 700 milliseconds. So that's uh, that's still nothing relative to, to what I've seen in, in past lives. I've seen yeah. dashboard queries take 15, 20 seconds. Um, so 700 milliseconds for the main screen of the application is pretty good, I think. So well, until those actually have issues, 
then I can go in and see, all right, what indices can I add? Can I remove indices or should I be caching something? So, yeah. Yeah. The good thing as well is, you know, exactly the request, which has taken a lot of time. Yeah. Which so you don't really like get with something like GraphQL or yeah, you won't know any of the other batching the, systems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is, I think there is monitoring for it, but you really have to dig in to work out what was the reason that the query took so long. I, um, we're, we're at an hour, so I don't want to take too much time, but, but, uh, I did have one other idea that I really like. Um, I yeah. don't know if it'll work in this project, but after reading through react query, um, it seems like it'd be pretty easy to write really declarative, effective, like stream based APIs, like a WebSocket API, um, that uses something like react query because they have this caching thing, this caching system it'd be very easy to like only issue requests on that WebSocket and actually write your uh, API handlers directly as WebSocket handlers. I can see something like that being uh, pretty interesting. It's funny you say that because I was going to ask you about WebSockets too. Next episode, maybe. Yeah, but it like this actually feels like WebSockets. React Query makes your app feel like it's got WebSockets. Yeah, I want to ask you what the trade-offs are with WebSockets too. But uh, for today... I'm just going to try this button here. Let's see what happens. Yeah, what happened? Oh, no. Well, I've got the uh, the podcast uh, board today. So. Yeah, we're still in isolation mode. You're in one state, I'm in another. I know. Very sorry if this isn't the standard uh, podcast that you've been expecting. We're, uh, I have the good microphone. We've got you've a got big lockdown. You've got all the good gear at your end. Frank's here, got uh, uh, iPod headphones much. in, and I can't even hear him over the music. <laughs> Turn it up. uh we post wednesdays sometimes not during lockdown apparently though uh we try try our best we try our best uh hop on our discord it's in the uh, show notes eric elliott if you're out there hop on and tell us about typescript eric elliott uh you you inspired me so don't be too angry with me for misrepresenting your views and uh You're welcome to come on the podcast too if you want. Maybe (laughs) I'll message you on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. Reach out to Eric Elliott, everybody. (laughs) All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Fuck, glad that's over.